Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. COVID collapsed, the U.S. economy suffering its worst quarter in history. A tectonic testimony, attention now shifts from antitrust to earnings for the big tech giants. And seeing red, the United States launching the world's latest mission to Mars. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you're safe and well as always. Not a moment to lose. It's a day where the data is both record-breaking and devastating in equal measure. Here it is. The United States is officially in recession. Second quarter GDP falling a staggering 32.9% annualized. It's the worst quarterly performance ever. And of course, it follows the first quarter's 5% drop. It's a measure of the cost of economic shutdown in April. And of course, this number comes despite the early reopenings that happened in May and June. And for that reason, it's also backward looking data, which is why the weekly jobless claims, for example, is still another critical thing to watch too. A further 1.4 million Americans filing for first-time jobless benefits last week. 17 million people continue to collect them. Actually, that's a substantial rise from last week. And this, of course, comes as the enhanced benefits runs out this week and talks to extend them in D.C. seem deadlocked. We'll be talking about this throughout the show for now. This is the picture for U.S. futures softer today. After solid gains yesterday, tech stocks outperformed unfazed by Criticism from lawmakers about their power and their influence. And just like an Amazon Prime delivery, there was a whole lot to unpack. We'll have analysis coming up for you. But for now, I want to give you a look at the global picture, too, because that's soggy as well. Germany reporting a 10 percent drop in second quarter growth. Another worst on record reading there, while over in Japan, they saw a fourth straight month of falling retail sales. The economic costs mount up. The U.S. Federal Reserve repeated something that we've discussed here many times on First Move yesterday. They said the only way to get fully back on track is to defeat the virus. And until that time, policymakers need to be ready to do more. And I'll keep repeating it. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, just talk me through this historic collapse in quarterly growth on an annualized basis. Let's be clear here in the United States. Yeah, Julia, it's a sobering number. You know, those of us who lived through this this past quarter sort of watched it happen. But I think 32.9%, although it's slightly better than expected, that's really semantic at this point. You really see the full force of this freight train, the virus and the lockdown measures plowing through uh, the U.S. economy. Yes, it's backward looking. Yes, it was probably at its worst in April. But but we do, if you look into the sort of detail of this, build up a picture of what exactly happened. Consumption is a big part of this. That, of course, 70% of the U.S. economy uh, in normal times. That dropped by 34.6% in the quarter. Within that, a 43.5% drop in services spending. That's things like healthcare, food services, accommodations, recreation services. Of course, we all stayed at home. We all stopped doing anything. And that is what is impacting this number. Uh, and of course, Looking back, you know, this is hopefully as bad as it's going to get, but not necessarily. We see a resurgence of cases. We see a rolling back uh, of some reopening measures. And of course, you talked about it 
What is going to happen when stimulus runs out? We are bumping up against those deadlines. Unemployment benefits set to expire at the end of this month. Things like support for airlines, which could be a huge deal when it comes to, to unemployment, expire at the end of September. So I think the onus, given this number, is now really on Congress to, to see what they can do to, to sort of bolster the economy. Because again, as you said, if you look at the initial jobless claims, that is a much more real-time indicator of what's going on. And this was the second straight week where those ticked up, Julia. Yeah, you make some great points there. We're going to see a bounce back in the data. This number would have been so much worse if we hadn't have seen those reopenings. The cost, of course, is the rising cases that we're now seeing and the real fears there that we are going to see a stumble. We're spluttering already as far as the the economy is concerned. And, you know, when I look at the continuing claims data here, the number of people that are already collecting benefits and continue to do so, that actually rose substantially uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, which is the latest data we have. These are warning signs. Yeah, I think we can see this as a, as a cautionary tale, as the, the Federal Reserve uh, said in its statement yesterday, that this, this economy is going to be dictated by the course of the virus. I think, you know, you can deduce from the fact that we're seeing these resurgences in states that it's not seasonally impacted. So it has to be impacted by what we uh, as citizens and consumers do, how we behave. And that, of course, can have a negative impact on the economy. Continuing claims, of course, really important. That's people who who filed for for claims for more than two weeks running. That was up 867,000 at the weekend in July 18th from the prior week. So so really unnerving statistics there, Julia. And I will say that if you look back at history, for example, the, the Great Depression, It shows that that consumption can be really slow to return when you're working off a fear-based situation like this. People stuffed their New Deal uh, paychecks under their mattresses. I think people are still very nervous. You can't undo the fear that that we induced in people to get them to stay home in the second quarter. It's such a great point. Just because they're earning more than they were perhaps pre-COVID could argue that they weren't living or weren't getting a living wage beforehand. And if you let that go, getting it back is going to be really tough, particularly in this environment. Claire Sebastian, thank you very much for that. All right. The most powerful figures in tech under pressure on Capitol Hill Wednesday challenged on their Internet domination. The CEOs of Apple, Facebook, Amazon and Alphabet were asked to explain their competitive practices. The committee chair's conclusion was clear. This hearing has made one fact clear to me. These companies as exist today have monopoly power. Some need to be broken up. All need to be properly regulated and held accountable. We need to ensure the antitrust laws first written more than a century ago work in the digital age. Donny Sullivan joins us once again. Donny, there were some deep detours. There were definitely some bites here. There was some lunch munching. What are your conclusions? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting afternoon. You know, I thought as far as congressional hearings go, um, there was a bit more meat on the bones in this one. But as you say, there were uh, a lot of uh, detours and diversions to uh, a lot of Republicans focusing on, you know, the perceived conservative bias of Silicon Valley uh, and asking sort of those more politically charged questions. But this, after all, it was an antitrust hearing. And I thought what uh, the Democrats on the committee had done quite effectively was, you know, we got to remember that this this hearing yesterday was only part of a months long investigation by the committee where they got, you know, many documents from inside these companies, internal emails and lawmakers didn't hold back yesterday using those internal documents as evidence and, and putting it to um, the the CEOs, uh, for instance, uh, emails in 2012, internal emails at Facebook about the acquisition of Instagram. 
and uh, the Democratic representative, Jerry Nadler, uh, putting to Mark Zuckerberg that, um, that, that, that Facebook viewed Instagram as a threat and rather than competing with it, it decided to buy it because it, it didn't think it could compete with it. Um, so, I, you know, I think a lot of what was made public yesterday will feed into a lot of the ongoing investigations. And um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, it all plays out, particularly when it comes to things like the acquisitions of, of WhatsApp and Instagram, whether anything will actually come of it. On the other hand, is, is a different story. Julia? Yes, Was innovation suppressed and were consumers harmed when Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp are all free to their users? It will remain a question. I want to talk about Apple as well, because I think Tim Cook got off lightly here. There was one moment where he was asked about rising, raising the costs of the App Store, access to the App Store for developers. Listen to this exchange. What's to stop Apple from increasing its commission to 50 percent? We, sir, we have never increased commissions in the store since the first day it operated in 2008. Doesn't mean you can't, though. And that's the definition of monopoly power. You can raise prices and people don't have a choice. They still come to you. Donny, what do we make of this? Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is there is that there's nothing to stop Apple from from raising uh, their commission like that. And, you know, that's what it's all about at the end of the day, whether it's Amazon, Apple, uh, Facebook or Google, uh, you know, it's about these walled gardens that they have created that the app developers sort of have to play in that space. Uh, but that space is ultimately owned by these massive platforms. So whether it's independent retailers who are trying to sell their products on Amazon and then Amazon decides to launch their own product and derank that independent retailer's product and take away a lot of their business, or whether it's Google who's pulling, you know, data uh, out of websites and putting it in their search results. So rather than having people go and click to go through to a website, that people stay within Google's search uh, ecosystem. And of course, uh, the same is true for the App Store. I mean, Apple has total control. They can pull an app, they can charge commission, uh, whatever they want. Uh, and so really that the app developers are totally um, reliant uh, on these platforms and and, 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 and these platforms and these companies, uh, you know, keeping them afloat. Yes, at the mercy of, Donny, very quickly, probability of some form of antitrust action as a result of what we saw yesterday. Give me a number. Um, there's a lot of... There's a lot of investigations. There's a lot of noise from both Republicans and Democrats. But if we, as we've seen before, uh, there's always it's very little action uh, when it comes to tech companies. Maybe that will change after the election. Maybe it won't. I oh, can't, make a, can't make a prediction. Hedging <laughs> closer to zero than 100. Tony O'Sullivan, so. thank you very much for that. China's Huawei has overtaken Samsung as the top smartphone maker in the world. Market research firm Canalys says Huawei sold nearly 56 million phones in the second quarter, while Samsung shipped around 54 million phones. Huawei sold most of its smartphones in mainland China. Sharice Pham is live in Hong Kong with all the details. Let's be clear, Sharice, it's all about China and it's all about COVID here. How long will this dominance last? Ooh, that is the key question. Look, taking the number one spot is hugely important for Huawei. They want to show that their brand is still strong so that they can convince customers and suppliers and developers to stick 
with them. But as you raise right there, the main question is, is how long will this last? And analysts are saying pretty unlikely. And that's because this is only possible because of the unprecedented market situation that we're facing with COVID-19. Huawei, as we know, we've talked about this for the better part of a year and a half, has been under a massive pressure campaign from the United States. It is cut off from key U.S. tech, which means its latest smartphones don't have Google apps, which makes them a lot less attractive to international buyers. As a result, most of Huawei's sales have now pivoted back to China. More than 70% of sales are in China. And so Huawei was able to capitalize on the economic recovery that played out in China because, of course, the pandemic and COVID-19 hit China earlier. And as a result, their recovery has also happened earlier. Of course, they are also potentially facing a second wave right now. That's another conversation. So look, will it last? Analysts saying no, because the other thing that also boosted Huawei here, not only was it their strong performance in China, but it was also Samsung's terrible performance everywhere else. Huawei still saw sales decline, shipments decline year on year for the quarter, 6%. Samsung saw a drop of 30% for smartphone shipments for Q2. So Huawei was able to sort of eke out a gain based on the economic recovery in China and based, of course, on Samsung stumbles. But analysts are already saying that this is really unlikely to last. Yeah, the catch-up's coming. Sharice Pham, thank you so much for that. COVID, the main story here too. Now to Germany, Europe's largest economy reporting the worst quarterly GDP drop since records began back in 1970. The German government says its economy contracted by more than 10% in the second quarter compared with the prior. Fred Peiken is live in Berlin with more. It's a devastating number, Fred, but it doesn't reflect the economic reality mm. today. And this is really important too. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think it is very important. The Germans have said a couple of weeks ago that they believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel with that contraction that was going on. Also because of the fact, Julia, that the Germans were able to reopen their society and thus also reopen their economy as well because the COVID numbers have been quite quite good here over the past couple of months. Of course, we know that they are going in the wrong direction at this point in time, and it's actually one of the reasons why the German government is saying, look, people really need to continue to adhere to the physical distancing, to all the other hygiene rules as well to make sure that there is not another economic lockdown and shutdown, which of course is so devastating for an export economy like the German one. Nevertheless, the numbers of course are still quite devastating uh, for uh, for this country, for this economy. And if you look at some of the com uh, companies that are involved, I saw numbers came out today from Volkswagen, uh, and they are deep in the red, really not looking good at all for uh, VW. And of course, I don't know if you recall, but a couple of months ago, it was actually at Volkswagen as they were firing up some of their plants trying to get things back online. They have done that. But of course, business is very slow with the entire world in a difficult economic situation. For the Germans right now, the big question is, they do make great cars, but who's buying them at this point in time? Right now, they believe that China uh, could help somewhat. But of course, the market in the U.S. very difficult. The market here in Europe 
very difficult as well. And then you had numbers coming out today from Deutsche Bahn, also uh, the worst numbers that they have had uh, since uh, since they became a privately owned uh, company. So things looking devastating there as well. The German machine tool sector also in big trouble. Again, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The German government says they believe that things are getting better, but certainly the data is not good. And they do believe also that the uh, recovery is going to be a fairly slow one. And a lot of these big industrial sectors that, of course, are so important uh, for Europe's largest economy, Julia. Yeah, so many challenges, not only uh, tackling the virus at the same time and keeping that under control, but businesses of all sizes and workers, of course, uh, challenged here. Frederick, great to have that update. Thank you. Frederick Pregnan there. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong are outraged after four student activists were arrested because of their social media posts under the city's new national security law. Twelve pro-democracy candidates have also been disqualified from upcoming legislative elections. Zimbabwe's government has signed a $3.5 billion agreement to compensate white farmers who were evicted in the land redistribution program of the early 2000s. Economists warn that Zimbabwe's cash-strapped government can't afford the compensation. CNN's Eleni Jokos spoke to Zimbabwe's finance minister and asked whether sectors such as health will suffer. This year, we're, we're going to spend easily $8 billion Zimbabwe dollars on health. That's the target. Eight billion Zimbabwe dollars on health. I mean, if I mean, I don't know which exchange rate to look at, um, but if if you look at the official rate, that is definitely many would say not enough. No, no. The way the way to look at it is not the way you have explained it in terms of the exchange rate, mm-hmm. but in terms of percentage of the of the government budget, because we we spend from what we have. So in terms of timing, there's no issue about timing here. What we've done with the farmers' conversation, this is a constitutional requirement. We have to fulfill that. A short time ago, NASA launched a mission to Mars, looking for signs of ancient life on the red planet. On board, the Atlas V rocket is a vehicle called Perseverance, which will scour the surface and collect soil and rock samples. It's one of three Mars missions this summer. China and the UAE have launched as well. And we'll have more on the mission to Mars later on in the show with the company behind battery protection technology on board. Also coming up on First Move 2, more of America's disastrous economic news analysis from the former acting Labour Secretary Seth Harris. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where it's looking like a week open for U.S. stocks. Futures at this moment down over 1%. We've got an avalanche of tech earnings later today, so that's probably giving investors pause for thought. We've also had devastating economic data from around the world, including here in the United States. Second quarter GDP falling almost 33% on an annual basis, the worst ever plunge in U.S. economic activity ever. At the same time, jobless claims rising 
by another 1.4 million people. Just to give you a sense of scale, we'll do this every week. Some 13 million people, according to the latest reading, still collecting some kind of benefit assistance. That comes in at around one in five American workers. All of this as enhanced jobless benefits for needy Americans runs out this week and a moratorium on U.S. evictions ends. Tens of millions of Americans are in danger of losing their homes over the next few months if they can't afford rent, according to certain estimates. Stimulus talks continue again today in Washington, but a deal does not appear close. Let's talk this through. Seth Harris joins us now. He was acting U.S. Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Seth, fantastic to have you on the show. These numbers are pretty devastating, whichever way you look at them. There's no question, Julia, this is the picture of a devastating and very rapid economic collapse. Um, I think we can expect to see some improvement in the third quarter, but the unemployment claims numbers that you cited are are really deeply troubling. Um, The reality is that since the beginning of June, the unemployment claims numbers, which are something of a proxy for the number of people who are losing their jobs in any given week, have been flat. They haven't changed, and they are at record high uh, levels. And so what that tells us is that we are not on a smooth path to recovery. And the small increase in unemployment claims lately suggests that perhaps the economy is slowing again, not collapsing, but slowing down again. And the hopes of a V-shaped rapid recovery are simply uh, silly and are gone. It's just tough to imagine what happens, whether it's the health crisis or just trying to get people back into the workplace, assuming that those jobs are available. Because when I look at the numbers for job openings and compare them to the sheer scale of people collecting benefits, there's still tens of millions of people without jobs, even if you match up as many as you can. The, The economics here are so challenged and they're challenged whichever way we look. That's precisely right, Julia. And this is uh, the big hole in the argument that President Trump and Republicans in the United States Senate are making. They are trying to make the argument that the reason that people are not going back to work is because they have given them an additional $600 a week in unemployment benefits, essentially, they argue, incentivizing them to stay home. But the truth is that right now in the American economy, or at least as of a few weeks ago, there are only 5 million job openings, and as you noted, 30 million people out of work. So even if you keep throwing incentives at people, it's futile. There are no jobs for these people to go back to, and that's because demand in the economy has collapsed. We do not have enough economic growth going on in the economy to sustain new jobs for those 30 million people who are collecting unemployment benefits right now. It's a flawed and, frankly, morally bankrupt argument designed to scale back government spending when, let me say, the GDP numbers tell us, the gross domestic product numbers tell us that the one thing that is keeping our economy going is government spending, unemployment benefits, food assistance, support for small businesses. And so if we cut that off or if we don't do enough of it, we're going to drive the American economy back down into a deep recession. The University of Chicago put out a study saying 68 percent of people actually are earning more now than they were earning pre-COVID. The median amount is a third higher than they were. So I can see that some Republicans, the more conservative ones, will look at this and go, hang on a second. Perhaps we got the numbers wrong. Fine if you want to reduce that perhaps to some degree or, or look at what people were earning before. But the logistical challenge 
of what the Republicans have presented here, never mind anything else of trying to work out what 70 percent of what people were earning pre-COVID and trying to do that for the coming months. How is that possible, given the challenges that we've seen, even with what's already happened? You're precisely right. Uh, State unemployment offices are completely overwhelmed even now. And so if you ask them to take on a new complicated calculation for each individual unemployment insurance check they have to cut, it's going to slow them down even further. Estimates are that it would take two to five months to implement the system that Senate Republicans and President Trump want them to implement. And in the meantime, lots and lots of people are going to get an inadequate amount of money. See, the most important thing to remember about unemployment benefits is that it boosts the economy, it boosts consumer spending, because there's a lot of evidence that unemployed workers, when they get a dollar, immediately turn around and spend that dollar. That's what keeps their local economy going, the grocery store, the gas station, their landlord. And if you take that money out of their pockets, spending is simply going to go down. So while there might be in a perfect world a better way to run this system, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a technologically challenged, under-resourced world, and we live in a world where the economy is really struggling. We need to pump as much spending into the economy as possible, and unemployed workers are the perfect way to do that. Yeah, there's no perfect solutions here, but pulling back the support at this moment is not the answer. Seth, fantastic to have you on. We'll get you back soon to discuss this. It's an ongoing challenge, clearly. Seth Harris, the former Acting Secretary of Labor under President Obama. So thank you again. Right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. And it's a risk-off day. For global markets, we've got U.S. stocks trading lower early on in the session. As you can see, a bit of consolidation from yesterday's solid gains. News that U.S. GDP fell almost 33 percent in the second quarter annualized. It was expected, remember, and it's backward looking. Where are we now? I think investors perhaps would have an easier and even easier time ignoring it if the economy were on a stronger footing today. But even the Fed yesterday warning that the economic bounce that we saw in late spring is fading. Well, what are the big businesses saying? It's a busy day for earnings. Procter & Gamble giving upbeat guidance as consumers continue to snap up the basics. Its stock is closing in, in fact, on record highs. What about UPS, another company that continues to benefit from the stay-at-home trend? Its Q2 profits nearly doubling as demand for package deliveries remains strong. After the bell today, of course, we're going to get some big tech results. But for now, it was Wednesday's antitrust hearing in Congress that takes our focus. Facebook CEO came under fire for the company's acquisition of Instagram. Lawmakers allege that the company copied and then bought its rival. Take a listen. Facebook cloned a popular product, approached the company you identified as a competitive threat, and told them that if they didn't let you buy them up, there would be consequences. Uh, Were there any other companies that you uh, used the same tactic with while attempting to buy them? Congresswoman, I want to respectfully disagree with the characterization. I think it was It was clear that this was a space that we were going to uh, compete in one way or another. I don't view those conversations as a threat in any way. Joining us now, Roger McNamee, co-founder and managing partner of Elevation Partners, also the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger, always great to have you on the show. I want to just um, 
reiterate what Mark said earlier on in the hearing. He said, we compete hard, we compete fairly, and we try to be the best. Do you think an antitrust line was crossed with Instagram? I think there is clear evidence of that. I mean, Julia, they produced documents from inside serious uh, senior executives at Facebook that suggest precisely that threats were conveyed and that, you know, Instagram was put in this position of sell the company or effectively be destroyed by, by Facebook. And to me, Julia, the thing that was striking about yesterday's uh, hearing is the level of preparation, the amount of documentary evidence that that committee already has. To me, what was striking in the past was that Congress looked overmatched when it met with tech CEOs. That was clearly not the case yesterday. And be clear, the format of these hearings is terrible for the audience, right? Because each member of Congress gets only five minutes and they alternate Democrat and Republican. And so it's all over the place. But if you sit there and just read the evidence that they have, it is, I think, conclusive relative to both Facebook and Amazon, and at least indicative relative to the others, relative to uh, essentially you know, using competitive power in ways that are a violation of antitrust. And, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that we don't see some form of regulatory case that comes out of this. I mean, who knows when? And these processes take years. But it does really appear to me that that uh, that this case is much further along than I think investors generally thought. How far along, I think, is the question? Because there's a defense here and yeah. they will use a defense that was innovation suppressed was the consumer hurt when WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook are free products? There's a utility value that we've talked about yeah. and we talk about it time and time again that you, you can't quantify yeah. here. Julia, if the only standard that's going to be applied is the price to consumers, right. it, will be hard, it will be hard to prove cases for many of these companies. The question is whether that standard, which is a very recent standard, it's only been in place for 40 years, in fact, is the only one that can be used. Remember, the United States has a long history, more than 100 years, where it had uh, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act, the Clayton Act, and the Federal Trade Commission Act from the beginning of the, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where very clearly the goal was to promote competition. Big was bad. That essentially the notion was that monopoly is something that authoritarians like, and that if you want to have democracy, capitalism is the right model. And we've gotten away from that. Every industry, the economy is really concentrated today. Tech happens to have more power. But the same thing's true everywhere. Part of the reason we see that horrible number on uh, GDP for the, for the quarter is because every industry is so consolidated that you don't have the flexibility to adapt around change. And I think that's part of why our response to COVID is so bad. You know, we have supply lines that are great for shareholders, but those supply chains were unable to adapt to make more PPE. They were unable to make, you know, uh, cotton swabs. They're unable to scale testing. I mean, all of those things are signs of an industry that is just too concentrated. And I think antitrust is one of those things that will be good for the markets and it will be good for uh, basically democracy. Time, I'm hopeful that we'll see more of it. Amazon's only stronger as a result of COVID and we'll see those results tonight. I just want to play a quick um, recording of 
of uh, Jeff Bezos when he was asked about the use of third party data and how that influenced their own behavior. Well, let me ask you, Mr. Bezos, does Amazon ever access and use third party seller data when making business decisions? And just a yes or no will suffice, sir. I can't answer that question, yes or no. What I can tell you is we have a policy against using seller-specific data uh, to aid our private label business, uh, but I can't guarantee you that that policy has never been violated. Another one, and obviously on mute there, which is going to be infamous, I think. Roger, does Amazon have a problem here too? I think they do. And let us be clear. The question is not, do these companies add a lot of value to the economy? The question is whether they use their market power in ways that in aggregate harm the economy by reducing innovation, by reducing the diversity of choices available to consumers, and by undermining employment by concentrating all the power. And I think on those issues, the tech giants are really vulnerable. Apple's in a different situation because it doesn't have the same negative impact on, uh, say, public health that you've seen from the other companies. And it certainly doesn't have the impact on democracy that both Google and Facebook have had. And, you know, Amazon, I think, is one of those companies that it's a victim of its own success. It has done this extraordinary innovation in changing how products are distributed. And I think there's a really strong call for turning the distribution portion of Amazon into a public utility. But the notion that Amazon can run a marketplace and also participate in it with its own branded products, that violates precepts of competition that date back more than 100 years. And I will be very surprised if that does not lead to some kind of investigation and case against. Yeah, they're almost so big. You're sort of hinting at the idea of a nationalization of a company because they're now so powerful. I wouldn't go to nationalization, but I think the idea that it becomes like an electric utility, that it provides that service to everyone, And to be clear, that's been Jeff's strategy all along. And from an investor point of view, the margins of public utility are actually higher than what they're doing in their distribution business today. The thing, Julie, the one point I really want to make for our viewers is that people have forgotten how important antitrust has been to the growth of the tech industry. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. Beginning in 1956, an antitrust case created computers as a separate industry. And put the transistor in the public domain, which started Silicon Valley. And then every industry thereafter, software, personal computers, data networking, the internet, each one of these things came out at least partially as a result of an antitrust case. Investors should be embracing antitrust as a positive thing. Because at this point, we're going to have to rebuild our economy. And entrepreneurship is our big strength. And when these guys say, oh, you can't regulate us, you need us to compete with China, I would point out that that's a false choice because our competitive strength relative to China is democracy and it is the diversity of our capitalism and that we should play to those strengths, not to little to companies that are little Chinas. That That's never going to be a successful strategy. Oh, you mentioned so many great points. I think we're in a position where investors think antitrust is a negative thing and we, we don't know our history yeah, well enough to not. understand we will talk about this. I also wanted to talk about their responses on China as well. And actually, we don't have time. But the difference between Mark Zuckerberg's response to being asked about Chinese theft and everyone else's was illuminating. But, Roger, I'm going to thank you. It, it you, is. It, my pleasure, on. Julia. You take care. No, you, we'll if, you have a, if you have a quick comment, we can do it. I'll, yeah, I'll take it, the uh, it's, it's really simple. 
The China trade-off is nonsense. No one should pay attention to it. The way to beat China is to let a thousand flowers bloom. Let's rebuild our entrepreneurial economy and go for maximum uh, innovation. We can do that. And this is the perfect time. We have to rebuild the economy. We will have a conversation about this because I completely agree. You've also written an op-ed for Time, which was great, saying safety, regulating the safety of these Internet giants is the most important thing. And um, we can talk about that, too. Roger, always a pleasure. Roger Ragnamy, co-founder and managing partner of Elevation Partners. So stay safe. Thank you. All right. After the break, what's NASA's multi-billion dollar Mars rover got in common with an electric supercar worth over a million dollars? It's all about keeping them cool. We'll see you after the break with the details. Welcome back to the show. That's NASA winging its way to Mars, a popular destination this summer. Well, part of it anyway. It's the third launch to the Red Planet this year behind China and the UAE. On board the NASA mission is a vehicle called Perseverance, which will search for signs of life on the red planet. The batteries on board include special cooling technology made by Cooler, which will also be found inside the Draco GTE, a high-performance luxury electric supercar. Joining us now, Michael Moe, the CEO of Cooler Technology. Wow, Michael, you've been busy. Great to have you on the show. Just talk to me and tell our viewers how your technology is being applied on this NASA mission. Uh, yes, hi, uh, hi, Julia. Good, good to see you again. Uh, yes, our uh, heatsink is on the Mars rover Perseverance. Uh, we're part of the uh, a, a instrument called Sherlock, uh, which uses laser and camera to find signs of life on Mars. So our carbon fiber technology is used to keep the um, the laser and the electronics on the Sherlock instrument uh, cool and sound to to find life on Mars. How does it actually work, Michael? How much heat can they absorb? Because you came on the show before and you said to us, look, this application is being used by by NASA, but it can also be used, as we just pointed out there, in supercars to keep lithium-ion batteries cool. Yes. Uh, So last year I was on the show, we were talking about our technology on the International Space Station uh, to keep uh, the astronauts' uh, laptop batteries safe and cool. Uh, You mentioned that we just uh, announced a partnership uh, with with uh, with Draco uh, GTE, uh, and this is a 1,200 horsepower uh, EV supercar. Uh, goes at the 206 miles per hour. I think it's the fastest uh, uh, you know EV on the market right now. Uh, we're gonna take the Mars rover technology and apply to their battery pack and make it even cooler. So um, the goal is to make it uh, the car even faster and to make it the coolest and the fastest uh, EV uh, in the galaxy. So uh, watch out, uh, Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Cool and cool there. But in terms of even just the physical substance here, because I was reading about it, it's a vertical carbon fiber architecture. It's like a wax and it goes from solid to liquid as it absorbs the heat. This is pretty unique technology. Yeah, that's a phase change. So as the the wax, uh, the paraffin, uh, changes uh, its um, uh, sh- uh, form, face, uh, from a solid form into a liquid form, uh, it would absorb a lot of energy or uh, or uh, put out a lot of energy uh, without the changing the temperature of the uh, the actual uh, heat sink in itself. So you keep a nice ambient temperature uh, for the instruments to operate on Mars, and that's how you can keep uh, 
you know, the lasers and the cameras, the, uh, you know, the instruments uh, operate well uh, on the Mars harsh environment. I believe that we actually have six of these heat sinks on Sherlock. So, you know, different instruments have different temperature requirements. So it's very important to keep those temperatures uh, uh, very constant uh, and nice for the instruments. Yeah, chemistry geek in me coming out here. When we last spoke <laughs> to you, when we last spoke to you, weren't profitable. Where are we today? How's the business doing? Because this has been an incredibly challenging time for, for all businesses, I think. What has it meant for, you, for your company? Yeah, no, uh, last time we, you know, we thought that we were in the growth phase. Uh, obviously, COVID hit. Uh, we took the initiative to lower our costs earlier this year. Uh, and uh, we announced uh, uh, that the forecast to be the Q2 uh, to have uh, over 200% growth year over year. Um, so our earnings uh, will be coming out soon, but that was already uh, uh, you know, given out as a forecast. Um, uh, we lower our costs on the operating side, uh, you know, really hunger down and uh, focus on our uh, you know, bread and butter, uh, going, going after the commercial customers as well as the, uh, the government uh, you know, contracts. So things have been going well, um, and uh, we will continue to, uh, to uh, see growth in our business. Will it suppress innovation, at least in the short term? As you said, you're having to cut costs here. I believe you took a paycheck protection loan as well, which is another thing for the company to handle. To what extent is it going to sort of stagger the growth that you were hoping for here? Or can you can you circumvent that? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, in this environment, uh, you still have to just innovate. Uh, mm. I think uh, last year we talked about uh, what I call the, uh, you know, the cooler 1.0 which is really showcasing the space uh, technology on the International Space Station, now on Mars. Um, now we're on the journey for Kula 2.0, which is taking that space technology and start showing it in vertical applications like EV, right? Take the Mars technology going into the fastest EV car in the world. Um, we also announced earlier uh, this month that we have a partner and customer called Volta Energy going to the energy storage space. And that's actually taking what we talked about last year about the International Space Station technology for, for keeping the batteries safe uh, into energy storage. So this customer is going to have the energy storage in uh, medical facilities, uh, office space. So, uh, you know, re- really go, you know, go, into these, um, uh, go into these vertical markets. Uh, and as a natural migration, we're going to continue to um, innovate and invest in the technology and then grow into um, how to combine these technology vertical space and work with regulators. Uh, about battery safety, you know, uh, how to embed our technology and our know-how into keeping the public safer uh, uh, by working with the regulators, as well as working with financial institutions such as insurance companies and leasing companies and so forth, and create the right, uh, you know, kind of the financial and business model for end customer. So um, the natural migration is to continue to innovate and uh, develop, uh, you know, a, a, you know, migrate a cooler business model from 1.0 to 2.0, hopefully to 3.0. So we get it. Michael, we get it. (laughs) You are are not standing idle. Great to chat to you. Uh, Thank you so much. Congratulations on the launch. We'll see how uh, the technology works. Come back and talk to us soon. Michael Mo there, the CEO of Cooler. All right. Great. Thank uh, you so much. In the last few minutes, President Trump suggesting an unprecedented move with fewer than 100 days until the U.S. presidential election. A tweet that we will discuss after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Some breaking news. President Trump suggesting on Twitter a delay to the U.S. presidential election in November. 
He tweeted, I quote, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good. 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely and safely vote. Joe Johns is in Washington for us. Joe, let's be clear, he doesn't have the power to delay an election. But for those that fear he will contest an election if he loses, this is fuel on the fire. That's absolutely right, Julia. This is the president of the United States delegitimizing, undermining an election yet to be held, set for November, in which he's well behind in the polls, at least right now. And since the Constitution does not give the president the power to change the time of elections that's left up to the Congress, he's essentially setting himself up to make the claim after the election results are in that the election was bogus. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that throws the United States into an uproar, as it did in 2000 with Bush versus Gore. Now, why can't he do it? It's because the Constitution leaves it up to the legislature, both the House and the Senate, to determine the time, place and manner of federal elections. So uh, that's it from here. I mean, uh, I did talk to a source up on Capitol Hill and asked, well, um, what about this? What are Democrats saying? What's the important thing to know? That source says it can't be done, so why pay attention? But the reason to pay attention, of course, the alternative view is that the president is seeking to delegitimize this election in which polls show he's behind. Julia, back to you. No coincidence, Joe, in timing, I think, as well, on a day where we see the second quarter growth collapse for the United States, down some 33%. The irony here actually is that the third quarter is meant to be better, and that comes just a few days before the presidential election. Right, because what that shows is one of the president's biggest arguments for re-election only about a year ago was the state of the economy that he continued to take credit for. Now the economy clearly is in a shambles. And he's not going to be able to use that to run on. So it's certainly problems for him, continued problems for the president as he sort of throws things against the wall to see what will stick. Add to the list the question about whether to delay the elections, Julian. Yeah, this debate will continue, no doubt. Joe Johns, thank you so much for your context there. Wow, that was a busy show. And that just about wraps it up. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.